Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the sixth message in our seven-part sermon series, The Politics of Jesus, Following Christ in the American Empire, a series intended to help us to navigate the election season by letting the Messiah from Nazareth shape our portrait of God, reveal the radical nature of our faith, and call us to live out the politics of Jesus in a modern-day empire. This is the Sunday before Election Day in the U.S., and that means that many of you are having a hard time thinking about anything else, and that will likely be the case for the next few days or more, depending on how long it takes to know the results of the 2020 presidential election. And then we wait to see how the country will respond to the results. And if you're like me, you're a little concerned about that due to the growing violence that we've seen, the unrest that we've seen in the last several years, and in a year that has included uh, many things like an economic recession, the rise of conspiracy theories and uh, white supremacy groups, a civil rights movement, a pandemic, and now a very contentious, much anticipated election. And we're all sitting on the edge of our seat waiting to see what is gonna happen next. Because Election Day is when the U.S. government, as it does every four years, asks you for your opinion about who should lead the country, who should represent the people, and about whose vision for the nation should be pursued, at least for the next few years. And so you've either already sent in your ballot by mail or you're likely preparing to vote in person this Tuesday. And for many of us, We've done that or will do that as followers of Christ, as worshipers of the one we call our Lord and King. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I'd like to call us to reflect on who we are as disciples, what it means to embrace the political agenda of Jesus and belong to his body, the church, and why we should get our life from Christ and not our vote, nor should we put our hope or the hope of the world in any political party or president. And I'd like to do that today in a message I'm calling Jesus, You, and the Voting Booth. You'll recall that earlier in this series I explained some of the meaning behind the series graphic. Specifically, the picture of a Middle Eastern Jesus that was created by Dutch artists using AI technology. But what I haven't addressed is the usage of American Empire in the subtitle. So I'd like to begin there today. Why do I refer to the U.S. as the American Empire? I know that I shouldn't just assume that my listeners understand why I'm describing the country that way, and I don't want you to think it's just some clever way of telling you what I think about the past four years. Hardly the case. I've personally viewed America as an empire for about 15 years now, and here's some reasons why. This isn't an exhaustive list, but enough that should put some things into perspective for us as a church. First, it's evident that the United States had imperial aspirations from its inception. 
And we need to be honest about this. And that may come as a surprise since the founding fathers rebelled against the British Empire, throwing off tyranny in order to create the best possible form of limited government and the greatest republic the world has ever known. So founders like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, who were all classically educated, drew inspiration from the Greco-Roman world. They purposely embraced what they believed to be the best of Roman law and government, Greek philosophy, imperial military strategies, classical virtues, and religious tolerance. Their admiration for these ancient empires are clearly visible in how the U.S. adopted the Roman eagle as a symbol of majestic power and how they incorporated Latin, the language of Rome, in founding documents and monuments and even on our currency. We can also see it in the architecture of federal buildings in Washington, D.C., modeled after Roman temples and imperial structures, which includes a giant Egyptian obelisk to commemorate the first president, George Washington, who, by the way, fancied himself as the legendary Roman military leader and statesman, Cincinnatus, a farmer who nobly led the armies of Rome in victory against their enemies, held supreme power, but then laid down his power after the war and went back to farming instead of ruling as a king or an emperor. But here's the thing. You don't actually need an emperor to have an empire. And I submit to you that the founders knew this and believed that they could create an empire of liberty, as Jefferson called it, but an empire nonetheless. And like all empires, myths and legends would form to mythologize and divinize America's beginnings. The Romans did it to propagate the idea that Rome had the blessing of the gods to rule, to occupy, to extend their empire in the name of peace, freedom, and the betterment of the world. They did that just as America has done. If we're honest, we can see how America has done the same. For the U.S., it's reflected in the notion of manifest destiny, that the expansion of the American empire throughout the continent and beyond the mainland was justified and inevitable because the U.S. was destined by God to spread democracy and capitalism to the entire world. And what began with the Puritans who viewed America as, as the new promised land and the Indian savages as the Canaanites eventually led to the extermination of entire tribes, uh, breaking treaties, stealing their land, and then to building this new empire on the backs of African slaves. America wasn't just the new Rome, she also had divine approval from the God of the Bible, as many of them thought and many of them believe, and still folks believe and teach today. It was the new imperialism, and what Woodrow Wilson and later presidents would call the new world order, brought about by the shining city on a hill. So from the very beginning, uh, America used biblical imagery and language to fuse with this idea of empire of liberty. In a book that just came out this year, we can see how it is that America is an empire and what most of her citizens seem to be oblivious to. 
In his book, How to Hide an Empire, Daniel Immervar, associate professor of history at Northwestern in Chicago, tells the fascinating and often surprising story of the United States outside the United States. Take a look at this. We're familiar with the maps that outline all 50 states. If we close our eyes, we can picture it. We've seen it enough, we all can just get that picture in our head. But the U.S. logo map doesn't accurately reflect the dominion of the empire. In fact, the map you're accustomed to seeing was only like that for three years in U.S. history. Instead, this image on the cover of Immervar's book uh, shows the actual territories this country has governed and inhabited to establish American presence around the globe. And presidents and politicians over the years were intentional not to call them colonies, but instead to call them territories in an attempt to avoid the obvious. In the years after World War II, when the world had been torn apart by empires, Immervar notes that the United States moved away from colonialism. Instead, it took a different approach, and it's called globalization. Globalization. Globalization is about spreading American culture and influence through technological innovation, through American corporations, from food to clothing to high-tech industries to big banks and big oil to controlling the global market by positioning ourselves with strategic allies around the world so that we can ensure American dominance, which is why we've seen foreign intervention by the U.S. government since World War II, from toppling regimes that don't coincide with American interests to invading and occupying sovereign nations in the name of freedom and democracy, while often turning a blind eye to grave injustices like the Rwandan genocide, or more recently, the atrocities committed by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, which has led to 5.6 million refugees fleeing that land. At some point, we have to come to terms with American imperialism that the U.S. isn't nearly as concerned about peace, freedom, and democracy as much as, as it is in policing the world and maintaining the total military dominance over nations, all the nations of the world. Think about this. There are currently more than 800 U.S. military bases around the world. Last year, defense spending on the military was over $718 billion dollars. And in the 244-year history of this country, we've only seen about 20 years of peace. America has been at conflict with someone somewhere around the world. And as I said, the U.S. was careful not to colonize others, but instead they annexed territories and strategically placed military bases around the world, as you can see in this graphic. This is the so-called empire of liberty. You know, this reminds me of President Dwight D. Eisenhower's, Eisenhower's uh, farewell speech given from the White House in 1961. After seeing the rise of American preeminence and the official creation of an American empire post-1945, Eisenhower, in his parting words to the country, said, As a result of World War II, we have been compelled to create a permanent armament industry of vast proportions. He went on to warn against the growing military-industrial complex and said that the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. 
Eisenhower knew that war could become profitable, and because of that, we might see more of it in the future, which we have. I have to say that this speech is rather haunting. If you just go on YouTube, look it up. Eisenhower's farewell speech, and you listen to it. It is haunting. It is eerie when you listen, and then you observe where we are today in 2020. So, reflecting on what I've shared about the American empire, and what little bit I've shared, I think we need to also acknowledge that this whole imperial enterprise rules out the idea that America is, ever was, or ever could be a Christian nation. In his recent book, Scandalous Witness, Lee Camp sums it up this way. This claim, he says, that the United States was, is, or can be a Christian nation is A, historically false, B, theologically false, and C, strategically alienating. Now, how is it that Lee says this is historically false? Well, just a couple of things. Consider this. Neither God nor Christianity is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. And while some founding leaders were Christians and some even loved the idea of America being Christian, the key founders were deists who believed in God or the Creator, but that he was distant. He was aloof and not the father of Jesus. You've heard me say before that Thomas Jefferson rejected the deity of Jesus and scoffed at the idea of miracles. They wanted, rather, religious tolerance. And there's no doubt that Christianity influenced their thinking. But as the Treaty of Tripoli stated in 1797 under John Adams' uh, time as president, it said this, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Now, Lee Camp says it's theologically false. How is it theologically false? As Camp writes, American... Uh, America cannot possibly be a Christian nation because no nation state can be a Christian nation state. Think about it. Nation states are bounded geographically by borders, but the kingdom of God and Christ's work in creating a new humanity on the earth is transnational and multi-ethnic. Nation states are bound by their own laws, but Christians are bound by Christ's law. Also, and most importantly, the Theocracy Project, remember this from Sunday school, was a complete failure. According to the Bible, this is not what God ever wanted, and it's not what Jesus came to establish. I'll come back to that in just a minute. And then how is this Christian nation idea strategically alienating for the church? Well, simply put, when we put our love for America, our identity as Americans, and our hope in America when we accept what the book of Revelation called the maddening wine of empire, we compromise our allegiance to Christ, we distort the beauty and distinctiveness of his kingdom, and we betray our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not American and who often suffer because of the decisions made by the United States. Furthermore, we bastardize our faith to unbelievers by wedding the gospel with empire, by putting down the cross to pick up the sword. And folks, all we need to do is look to history, going back to Constantine in the fourth century, and, and before that to ancient Israel, and see that this has never worked out for God's people or for the world. You know, the gospel is most striking 
And it's most captivating when the church sets herself apart from empire and power and trusts in the foolishness of cross power. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to with his words in John 18, 36. We've seen this already. Here it is again. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, he told Pilate. But my kingdom is not of this world. As I've said before in this series, Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is far off and far removed from real life, from real concerns, and from injustice. No, he is saying, while my kingdom isn't of this world, it is for this world. So let's be clear about this. His kingdom, that is the reign and the rule of God on the earth, which always looks like Jesus, operates differently. Folks, this is the better country that Hebrews eleven sixteen speaks of, the one we really long for, not the cheap imitations and the parodies that we see in nations and empires of the world. Instead, we long for a better one. Hebrews says a heavenly one. That country will never let you down. But we need to know this country, God's kingdom, is not about power over, it's about power under. Worldly kingdoms can threaten lawbreakers, as I've said. They can go to war against their enemies. They can create policies to combat evil and promote justice, which can help, to be sure. There's no doubt about that. And Paul gets at this in Romans 13, the place of government. But listen, the kingdoms of the world can never change hearts. And as long as there are broken people, people made in God's image, but broken as, and not as they should be, there are always going to be problems when, when people of the earth try to get together and organize themselves and, 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 and form governments. You see, they cannot bring the peace and freedom that they promise. Only the kingdom of God can do that. Worldly kingdoms can only suppress evil. They can't overcome evil, as Paul tells the church to do in Romans chapter 12. And so how do we overcome with the power of the kingdom and the truth of the gospel? Well, we believe in the way of Christ, and we believe in his messianic agenda. Remember, it's about forgiveness of sins and crippling debt. It's about blessings for the spiritually destitute, help for the helpless, the poor, and the outsiders. It's about compassion for the brokenhearted. It's about healing physical and spiritual wounds, opening the eyes of the blind. It's about deliverance from spiritual evil and from oppressive systems of abuse and injustice. It is about rewards for the merciful, for those who love their enemies, for those who make peace, and for those persecuted for living this way. And the first Christians took Jesus' political agenda seriously. They understood that Jesus was calling for a new world order. He was challenging the status quo, challenging the empire, and casting a new vision for the world, which again comes by patiently living out his teachings and trusting in cross power. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the early church did this and experienced explosive growth in the face of opposition against all odds, and they had no political power, no privilege, no vote, yet the kingdom advanced through them. Remember how they furthered the kingdom despite how they were despised by the empire. Despised for not swearing and pledging to Caesar. Despised for refusing to glorify violence and war. Despised for having, having high ethical and moral standards. For denouncing lust, greed, and materialism. Denounced and despised for valuing all life, that is, the unborn, the poor, women, widows, and the marginalized. Despised for rejecting the gods of Rome, to worship a crucified criminal is the one true God. 
And of course, because of the way they lived, all sorts of rumors spread about them. One particular place where the early Christians were given a difficult time was in the Roman colony of Philippi. This was a city filled with the rich, powerful, elite. Scholars say that it was populated by many retired Roman soldiers and other imperial loyalists and patriots. It wasn't the place that any marginalized person would want to be. For example, it appears that there weren't any Jews who lived there because it took 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue and there was no synagogue in Philippi. That certainly explains why the church in Philippi was started by a Gentile merchant woman named Lydia, as Luke tells us in Acts 16, and why the apostle Paul was thrown into prison there for casting a demon out of a poor servant girl who made money for her master by telling fortunes. You may recall this is where Paul and Silas were in jail praying and singing when the earthquakes and the Roman jailer who witnessed it accepted their message and his whole family became Christians. So imagine that Roman colony as you read Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. All throughout the letter, Paul uses politically subversive language that Jesus is Lord and Savior, right? That, so that Caesar is not. Political titles that Romans used to speak of Caesar, he spoke of like the good news of Jesus, which was a word used by Romans to describe what Caesar's empire gives the world. And look, his audience knew how this sounded. They, they knew what it meant for their identity, their allegiance, their loyalties, and their citizen status. Remember, it's in this political letter that Paul writes that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, we must hear how politically subversive and transcendent the gospel of the kingdom is to those who pledge their allegiance to empire to protect a, a certain way of life and to fighting with the weapons of this world to maintain it. That, that is why we must remember who we are and the agenda that we're called to embrace, which cannot be contained or lived out through any political party or any nation on the planet. And please hear me. Hear me, church. I don't say that to discourage us from civic participation, but to remember that only so much can be achieved by worldly kingdom means. You want to be involved in the political realm. You want to be involved in government. Well, insofar as you can follow Jesus and be faithful to the teachings of Jesus, you are free. But watch out. Many of us cross that line without ever recognizing that we've done so. And this is what Jesus warns us about. It's what the New Testament warns us about right? That the kingdom of God, only the kingdom of God can, can achieve long-lasting change. We should never forget it. The New Testament teaches us this. And we can look to the early church and Christians around the world today who testify to the fact that the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the success of the church does not depend upon politics and worldly kingdom power. It never has and it never will. Nevertheless, I want us to think about how these Christians in Philippi modeled the faith and what Paul is, is telling them to do in following Jesus here. While they likely couldn't vote, as the voting system was very different in ancient Rome, they're still very political. So let's listen to what Paul says to them and what the Spirit wants to say to us who live in a representative democracy where if you're a citizen and you're registered, you can vote. Paul says this in Philippians 1:27. He said, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Citizens of heaven, look at that. 
We're aliens and exiles and strangers in the world. That's what Peter said. And here the Apostle Paul is saying that we're ambassadors for the kingdom. Our passport reads citizens of the kingdom of God. And it's out of this identity, this calling, and this concern that we live and engage with the polis, that is, the city-state. Paul is saying this citizenship trumps all others, and it ought to inform how we conduct ourselves wherever we happen to live in the world. Conducting yourselves. Look at that phrase. The Greek word here that's used is polytuistheth. Now look at that word. It helps to see that in the Greek. This refers to our civic life. That's the kind of conduct Paul has in mind, our civic conduct. How we behave politically should reflect, that is, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. It should reflect the politics of Jesus. It should show that we value what Jesus valued, that we believe in the messianic agenda, and that we get our marching orders from Christ and his teachings, not from a political party or from a political ideology. So with this in mind, you're probably wondering, how do we conduct ourselves civically in an empire with a representative democracy? And more specifically, how should we vote? To help us answer that question, I thought it'd be best to let the creative animator, speaker, and podcast host, Phil Vischer, do what he does best. Take something that can be really complicated and make it a bit simpler for all of us. Give Phil a listen, and then I'll close with some final thoughts. How should we vote? Well, it's simple. If you're conservative, you vote for conservative candidates who will implement conservative ideas. If you're liberal, you vote for liberal candidates who will implement liberal ideas. And there you go. But what if you're Christian? Here's the deal. Christian teaching doesn't always line up neatly on the conservative or the liberal side. And historically, evangelical Christians wouldn't have thought of themselves as either liberal or conservative they thought of themselves as Christian. So what changed in the church? It's actually not just that something changed in the church, it's that something changed in America and the church went along with it. In the 1950s, relatively few Americans would label themselves as liberal or conservative. Labels like that just weren't that important. And the political parties weren't labeled liberal or conservative yet either. There were Republicans who voted for big government social programs. And there were Democrats who voted against big government social programs. Christians would support whichever policy or candidate they agreed with most. And then, beginning in the 1960s, something happened. Some people have called it the big sort. Political scientist Alan Abramowitz calls it the great alignment, where Americans rearrange themselves and their political parties along new lines, conservative and liberal, and the church followed right along. We need to talk about something called ideological constraint. As I mentioned, in the 1950s, few Americans identified themselves by ideology. I'm a liberal, or I'm a conservative. Ideas and policy proposals were accepted or rejected based much more on their merits, and much less based on whether they matched your ideological identity. That has changed radically. Today, the majority of Americans will reject policy ideas entirely based on their ideological identity. If I see myself as a conservative, I must reject any proposal that involves government programs or 
higher taxes as a solution. If I see myself as a liberal, I must reject any proposal that emphasizes traditional family structure or traditional sexual morality as a solution. If I'm liberal, I must oppose any restriction on abortion access. If I'm conservative, I must oppose any restrictions on fossil fuels or free markets. And the list goes on and on. Liberal ideology says poverty is primarily a structural problem. Conservative ideology says poverty is primarily a personal responsibility problem. We're so ideologically constrained, a recent study showed we're as much as 40% less likely to accept facts if they come to us on a page that also includes the logo of the other political party. In other words, once we've chosen an ideological identity, we're now forced to reject or accept policies and ideas not based on their merit, but based on their supposed alignment with our ideology. All proposed solutions are pushed through those ideological filters. As I mentioned, this is relatively new in American political history and also new in church history. Historically, evangelical Christians didn't care if an idea was conservative or liberal. They cared if it was biblical. So Christians advocated for personal holiness, an idea we now consider conservative, while at the same time advocating for legislative reforms on behalf of disadvantaged groups of people, an idea we now consider liberal. Look, if Jesus came back and found tables in the temple offering buttons that say Democrat or Republican, conservative Christians might assume he'd put on a Republican button to match his conservative beliefs. Liberal Christians might assume he would put on a Democrat button to match his liberal beliefs. He wouldn't. He would throw both tables out of the temple. So how do we vote? The book of Proverbs contrasts at great length the behavior of the righteous and the wicked in society. The best way to summarize the difference is by saying this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. In Matthew 25, Jesus goes through a long list of people in need that he expects us to help. You know the story. Whatever we do for the least of these, we are doing for Jesus. And of course, the greatest commandments, the ones that sum up the entirety of the law according to Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we vote? We vote to advantage our communities, even if it disadvantages ourselves. We vote for the benefit of the least of these, wherever they are in the world. We speak up with our votes for those who can't speak up for themselves. We vote for the good of our neighbors and the flourishing of our world. So who counts as the least of these? The unborn? Yes. The poor? Yes. Immigrants and refugees? Yes. The incarcerated? Yes. Those who don't have access to health care or education? Yes. Those that are affected by climate change or racial injustice? Yes. And then we need to remember that as the wealthiest, most influential nation on earth, our policies affect the entire world. Smaller, poorer nations can focus primarily on their own welfare. We cannot. We are not simply voting on behalf of the needs of Americans. We are voting on behalf of the needs of the whole world. This is tricky because neither of our two major political parties cares about everything the Bible asks us to care about. But who said following Jesus was supposed to be easy? If we are advocating for all of those Jesus calls us to love, sometimes that will mean supporting policies our conservative friends call liberal. 
Other times, it will mean supporting policies our liberal friends call conservative, and that's okay. Different Christians will prioritize the issues at play in any given election differently. So, Vote your conscience, but make sure it's an informed and sanctified conscience. That means two things. First, learn about our world. And second, pray about our world. Do the work to be an informed voter who understands the issues and cares enough to pray about those issues. If you do those two things, I think you'll find it easier to reject labels that have no basis in Scripture. The buttons we should be wearing are the ones that say, I am a Christ follower, and I voted as such. See? It's not that hard. Well, actually, this year it kind of is. But you can do it. I believe in you. Brothers and sisters, I know that some of you may not think it's very hard knowing who to vote for this election. But I also know that there are those of you who feel that neither candidate is worthy of your vote. Some may choose not to vote because of the choices, or some may choose to write in the person they'd like. For many, we wish we had another option, a better candidate with better policies. I wish that things were different, but this is where we are. So as your pastor, let me say this. If you're going to vote and walk with Jesus into the voting booth, Let it be with the understanding that Jesus is the true king and his kingdom will come despite the powers that rival his rule, despite the ways the world rebels against him, and despite how bad things may seem right now. Also, if you're going to vote, as Phil said, may it be to help those who need it most. May it be for the common good, not merely to benefit a few, Not to benefit the rich, the powerful, and the privileged. Not to further empire. No, Paul says, let your politeuiste, your political life, be worthy of Christ. Therefore, let the voiceless, the hurting, the oppressed, and the marginalized vote through you. Don't vote out of your fears. Vote for the best interests of those people. And then carry on with voting every day with each decision that you make to follow Jesus instead of your flesh by trusting in small acts of love, justice, and fairness and in the accumulative power of our choices. This is what Jesus invites us to do, to believe that the power in those things is greater than how you cast your vote every four years. If only we could have a kingdom imagination like that and be patient and empathetic as the early church was. Also, while it may sound a little cynical, I believe that it reflects the true reality of worldly kingdom politics. I think if we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ and go vote, well, here it is. Vote for the person who will do the least damage to our country and to our world so that we might live peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness as we seek to further the kingdom of God on the earth. Finally, I want to call our focus and attention to the table of Christ 
as we prepare for communion. Friends, our Lord Jesus called his disciples to be one and to remember who we are in him, what he's done for us on the cross, and that someday he will return to renew and resurrect this world. This communion table included disciples with various opinions about how the kingdoms of the world should operate. Just think about it. Rural, largely uneducated fishermen, a tax collector who exploited his own people and was despised by the Jews, a zealot who wanted to kill tax collectors, and a dishonest accountant named Judas. And yet, these are the kinds of people that Jesus called to the table and calls us to come to the table with. And it's at this table that we remember what Jesus has done and is still doing today. We remember that Jesus calls disciples from diverse backgrounds who hold differing opinions about various theological and political issues to express their unity in him. We remember that Jesus is forming a new nation, a royal priesthood set apart from all kingdoms of the world and the politics of idolatrous empire. We remember that real power in this world, power to save, to transform, to change, ultimately comes from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, God's Son, and in our willingness to embody the Messianic agenda. At the table, we remember our sin and our need to repent of all that dehumanizes us so that we can love God, our neighbor, and our enemies as ministers of reconciliation. We remember that we are not to conform to the pattern of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we remember that in communion, we identify ourselves as children of the one true King, citizens of heaven and exiles on the earth until he returns in glory for his bride. Church, my invitation to you today is that you would remember this as disciples of Jesus. In the coming days, remember who you are, what it looks like to embrace the way of Jesus, and where our ultimate hope and help comes from. Not in horses and chariots, not in parties and presidents, not in donkeys or elephants, but in the Lamb of God who's called us to subvert the powers of evil and empire by orienting our lives to the kingdom that is coming. Amen. And may God help us to live this way for such a time as this.